0: So our long period in the church calendar called Ordinary Time is only got about a month left, and then we'll be to Advent before we know it. And during this season of Ordinary Time, we've been looking at spiritual formation over a lifetime. We did a few weeks on Peter, and now we've been in a a longer session on looking at David as a person in formation. And we've been consulting with uh, Eugene Peterson's book, Uh, A leap over a wall and this morning we turn to the topic of the greatness of love so as Beth said this is a fairly familiar story of David and Jonathan who were deeply close friends they were covenant partners Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son he's Saul's grandson he was five years old when his dad was killed in battle and in grief his grandfather took his own life it was customary after such battles that a whole lineage would be wiped out just making sure that there was no one around to you know make claim to the throne and so Mephibosheth's overseer knows this is true knows that he's unsafe and so he picks up little Mephibosheth and he flees with him but as they're hurrying to leave they fall and Mephibosheth is crippled and so when he's called to appear before David David, in this act of welcoming hospitality, calls him by his name and not because it's hard to pronounce, but you can't be loved until you're named. You can't love in the abstract. And right now, I think this is a deeply painful part of being human because the stuff that appears on the news feeds of our phones as we swipe through the day's news is all in the abstract. You know, we don't don't love named persons who were bombed in Syria. We have this abstraction about pacifism versus war or whatever, right? So we we kind of, so much of what appears in our news feeds and as we drive down our busy freeways, it, it's in it's in the abstract. But David was wanting to concretely love a person, and so he names it Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replies, at your service. But David knows that what's underneath that is power inequity that would have caused fear, at least anxiety or uncertainty. And so paraphrasing, David says something like, Don't be frightened. I want to do something special for you in memory of your father, Jonathan. And so to begin with, I'm giving you all the land that was your grandfather Saul's. And furthermore, you can eat at my table for the rest of your life, being handicapped the way you are. And Mephibosheth bows down and says... Who am I, a servant that you notice like a, a dead dog like me? And so now I want you to begin to feel. I want you to just feel the low self-esteem that someone like Mephibosheth would have had. Have you ever had anybody in your family who committed suicide? Ever known anybody close to you who did? It's, I don't know, it's, it's up in the top few things that are most painful to humanity. So he knows his grandfather, this great Jewish person, killed himself. He knows that his father was killed in battle. So just kind of imagine, the, the, as, as Mephibosheth stands before David, the low self-worth, the right-in-front-of-his-face, everyday handicap, the shame brought to him by his father's death. Because if you were a Jewish leader and you got killed in battle, that meant what? Favor of God's not on you. Because if the favor of God was on you, you would have won this battle. So my grandfather committed suicide. My dad was a loser. He's aware of defeat, suicide, And most of this could be construed as David's fault. Had he wanted to, he could have pinned all that on David. So I just want you to picture Mephibosheth from the age of five nurturing this deep sense of victimization and probably in his mind over and over again fantasizing revenge on the world, fantasizing revenge on those who are to blame. I haven't said anything about this over the last few weeks because I pick and choose my pop culture things pretty carefully but I for one to the degree that I speak for all the men in the room thank God but I for one think we might be living in a cultural moment as we now have a long list of powerful men using their power to sexually exploit women from Hollywood to Washington DC to every ethnicity I just it feels like maybe we're getting to the point where we're all sick of it Not just the exploited women, but men who have any compassion in their heart at all. And so I hope for the sake of women that this kind of dehumanizing behavior will come to an end, but I bring it up here to say that this is not ultimately about sex. This is at bottom about power. Who has it and what you do with it when you have it. And... Black people and brown people and Asian people of power have done unspeakably dehumanizing things. This is not about whiteness. This is about power. History is loaded with examples of women in great power who did brutal things. This is not about gender. This is about power. It's not about your skin color. It's not about your body parts. It's about power. David's in power here. And Mephibosheth is a complete loser from his lineage to his handicap. And David's heart, the one who is now the indisputable king, the bent of his will is to do good with his power, not to exploit. And so what I want us to recognize in this cultural moment that I think we're living in, that if you get past the salacious details of the sex that's involved in the exploitation, I think if we're honest, that hidden in all of our hearts are less salacious, non-sexual ways of exploitation, kind of all day, every day. It just seems so fundamental to the human person that a part of the reason I'm hoping this is kind of a cultural moment is not just for the freedom of women. That that I mean, that would be enough of a miracle. But if we can, I think if we're willing to just be discerning about this that what's really in play here is what do you do when you have power? And this is why Mephibosheth is so afraid of David. We too are afraid of people in power. And the, we are, it feels like we're afraid with good reason, that we know how often, usually in small ways, we use our comparatively small power to exploit, to get our way, to harm others in the pursuit of our desires. And so, when Mephibosheth stands there as this deep victim and knowing that power is not safe, this is why he says, What is your servant that you notice a dead dog like me? And then he's, of course, surprised by the generous, extravagant, uncalculating love of David, which, of course, here is kind of a type of God in Christ. That David had sought out Mephibosheth from the place of power and strength as now the undisputed king, not to harm him as the grandson of his enemy Saul. And not to harm him as somebody who might try to make some sort of claim to the throne, but to love him as the son of his covenant friend, Jonathan. And so what I think the, the, the real key formational aspect for us, I think, in this passage is that when David asks the question, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake, what that's revealing is the condition or posture of David's heart, that it was bent to the good. His desire was to be kind, And out of that desire, he devised a strategy. Now, that might sound like a funny word to be used in a sentence or an idea about love. But I don't think it actually is because all a strategy is, is a plan of action. And so David thinks, if his strategy was, if I can find somebody who's still attached to the house of Saul, then I can do him good. I will their good. And I just want you to see how that is a, that's kind of like virtuous, that's an inner virtue, That's that's a character, that's an integrity, that's a posture or a bent of the heart to do good, not to do evil out of fear, or even just saying, hey, look how Saul mistreated me. I was dodging spears every other day. I don't owe his grandson anything. If I owe him anything, I owe him something bad. But David's heart is bent in a different way. He wills his good. So now I want to suggest to you what I think could be a very helpful, very thoughtful sense of our own formation in Christ. Travis just helped us sing, Jesus, I love you. So now I want you to just consider, you could just sit with this for weeks. Jesus, oh, how I will your good. Oh, how I will your good. Oh, how my will, the posture of my heart, is bent towards your good. Now, this can include feelings of love, obviously. You might be here this morning with lots of feelings of love towards Jesus. Fantastic. It's just that it can't be reduced to that. What's core to Jesus, I love you, is Jesus, I will your good. I will what the Father is doing in and through you. And so for David, this is kind of a formational moment because now with the war's over and stability's in view, he's answering this big question, what do I do now as the undisputed king? What do I do with power? And Psalm 145, it's known as one of David's psalms of praise, we see something in his heart, where, having received the love of God, where he says, the Lord is gracious, is compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he's made. The Lord upholds all who fall. Now we we can't know for sure that David is in any way picturing Mephibosheth here. But he has that virtue in him, that bent of his will, that the Lord upholds those who have fallen and are handicapped. And he lifts up all who are bowed down. And so I think this story brings us to the consistent core theme of the Bible, and that is the greatness of love. And you can just think of that famous passage of 1 Corinthians 13 that you know now remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these are love. Why? Why is this such a core thing to the Bible? Well, hear Jesus, and I want you to hear this imaginatively. Like I don't want you to hear this sort of doctrinally or Bible data, but to just kind of feel how love is this consistent core theme. Jesus said, God is love. Jesus said, we love because God first loved us. Remain in my love. Love as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, and he laid down his life for others. A new command I give you, love one another, love your enemies, do good to them. You know that's a Jesus saying, right? Do good to your enemies. Jesus talked about the greatest commandment, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, and said straight out, it's more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And we might say, you know, it transcends all liturgy, transcends all contemporary worship songs. Paul said, Be devoted to one another in love. Paul said, Love is the fulfillment of the law. Follow the way of love. Do everything in love. Serve one another in humility and in love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Bear one another in love. I mean, you could go on and on quoting Paul. Peter says, Love one another deeply from the heart, three times in his letters. Thinking of John, he said that the message you've heard from the beginning is this that we should love one another, and that anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Again, we could go on and on, quoting John. And as I was thinking about this week, thinking about this this week, it made me realize um, how much I need and value my teachers. You know, you might think there's somebody at my age who's been walking with the Lord since I was 19, and you know, have all these fancy religious positions. You know, you would think that maybe I've Sort of graduated beyond needing teachers and nothing could be further from the truth i rely constantly especially on a few teachers one being dallas willard who wrote love is the concrete devotion to someone's good or well-being it's not sentimental abstraction it involves compassion a concern for the struggles of others and this only happens well when we're sure that god loves us in this way thus rich in love healed by love, made free in love, we're transformed into an overall condition in which our embodied social self is poised to practice the goods of human life that are within the range of our influence. So while Mephibosheth was, you know, uh, we, Andy read to us, those the little data points that he was in this city and in this house, and, and in that sense, very separated from the royal court, as this named person in a named place, but he was still within the range of David's influence. So while geographically it was hard, in David's heart it wasn't. Or Tom Wright says, our task is image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, spirit-filled Christians, following Christ and shaping our world, is to proclaim love and trust to a world that only knows exploitation, fear, and suspicion. It is copying the self-giving love of Jesus. So picture a world in which a woman could go to a meeting safe. How would that ever happen? It only happens in which she knows the person with whom I'm meeting wills my good. I'm not an object, I'm not a toy for them to exploit, actually using their power over me to exploit me, but rather having power, they will the good of another. Eugene Peterson says, Christians don't simply learn, or study, or use scripture, we assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love. I love that sentence. We don't just simply memorize scripture, as important as that is. We don't just study scripture. It's meant to get metabolized into us such that it it expresses itself in acts of love, in cups of cold water, in missions into all the world, in healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, in hands raised in adoration to the Father, in feet washed in the company of the Son. And the one thing that I've learned from Eugene that I hope to God I never forget as long as I live is that love takes time. And time is the one thing a person in a hurry does not have. I just need to hang that, well, I was gonna say, I need to hang it on a plaque on my wall. Actually, I need to hang it as a reality in my heart. Because my life is easily driven into a hurry, easily. Maybe the number one thing I have to battle, and a person in a hurry cannot love. There's just not the space in your heart and mind, you can't do it. You're literally driven out of control. You don't have the space. You don't have the mental, emotional, relational space in which to do it. So I don't know about you, but I still need teachers. The last one I think of, Henry Nowen. And, you know, thinking of Jesus' words, this is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. And, you know, love as I have loved you. Nowen says, as long as I keep running about asking, do you love me? Do you really love me? I give all power to the voices of this world and put myself in bondage because the world is full of ifs. The world says, yes, I love you if you're good looking and intelligent and wealthy. I love you if you have a good education, a good job and good connections. I love you if you produce much, sell much and buy much. Henry says there are endless ifs hidden in the world's love. These ifs enslave us, he says, since it's impossible to respond adequately to all of them. And as long as I keep looking for my true self in the world of conditional love, I remain hooked to the world, trying, failing, and trying again. It's not a world that fosters addictions because of what it, off- because what it offers can't satisfy the deepest cravings of my heart. So I say this all the time when I'm speaking to groups of ministers and others, but I mean this with my whole heart. Like I never wake up in a day and think like I'm Bishop Todd. I never wake up thinking I'm pastor of holy trinity i never wake up thinking about being a professor or author or whatever honestly god my first sense of myself is i'm an apprentice to jesus and these are my teachers there's others but these are my teachers these are the ones that i've come to rely on to help me in the way of jesus and so i i try to steep my imagination in the scriptures you know all those scriptures we read about you know this this sort of biblical worldview of love and kindness and generosity that comes out of being settled in god i just it's for me it's my only hope it's my only hope to be a decent husband it's my only hope to be a decent father it's my only hope to be a decent any of the roles i play in life is to make my first sense of myself is that i'm an apprentice of jesus that's what i get up every day thinking about and that's probably the reason i covet teachers You've probably never had one thought in your life about a golf teacher because you don't intend to play golf so why would you ever think about a golf teacher but the moment you decided you want to play golf you'd go find a teacher or tennis you'd go find a teacher how do you hold a racket how's that toss work the thing that you care about is the thing for which you'll go find teachers and so the reason i've went and found these teachers is this is the thing i care about like i care about the capacity of virtue inside me and I have to cultivate that so that when the moments of my life come I can sort of naturally instinctually act in virtuous ways but that has to be cultivated so I think Mephibosheth stands before us as an example of the redemption available to those who come humbly before the king of kings that that if you can just picture that moment between Mephibosheth and David that's a picture of us coming to God and our brokenness our handicaps coming as those who have nothing, who've been shamed or rejected, hurt, too young, too old, black, white, rich, poor, that this is meant to give us like an assurance, it's it's like a type uh, for how God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So in, in the same way that David is giving out of his richness, that God gives out of his richness to us. And my great hope would be that as you live in this world, that seems to be increasingly marked by power and exploitation we just right now happen to be having a cultural moment you know with you know all these men exploiting women that's just kind of our cultural moment but I want you to know that exploitation is not fundamental as much as it's daily in our face in sexual and non-sexual ways exploitation is not fundamental Fundamental to this world is love. Exploitation is a cheap imitation. Fundamental to this world is a loving, one, true creator God who created this world and you and everything in it, and this good creation is going to come out good. That's fundamental. So we don't live as reactionaries. We live in the reality of a God who is totally competent in his love. And in this story, David is a type of finding that which is broken and not exploiting it, but giving it this generous love. So maybe this morning as we come to our quiet time, as you bow your head and close your eyes and center yourself here, maybe you're here today needing to receive love. Maybe you just happen to have walked in here this morning aware of your handicap, aware of being hurt by unrequited love, maybe you kind of easily attach to a kind of victimization and need to receive love. Or perhaps you're here this morning needing to dare to love again, to, in a sense, risk it all, to venture, to bet on the fact that exploitation is not fundamental, but the utterly competent love of God is. And that's what provides the context for us to dare to love.